0: morning, friends. A couple weeks ago, we started this new uh, series on thinking about what is the church about because we're trying to think about what is North Valley about. And so uh, the idea of what's the church supposed to be, what direction do we have about that, what insight do we have about that, all seemed like good things to be doing. And Colin began to direct some of that for us to help us think about some of these things. Uh, And part of what Colin said is, Jesus didn't set out to make an institution. That wasn't Jesus' plan to create uh, some kind of corporation. It was about relationship. It was about connection. Jesus initiates a community, a shared life together. And this shared community is based around the presence of the real and powerful and unimaginably good God. This transformative presence of God among us. And so the church, in other words, is a community of people who live out the love and call of that present God who works in our mutual lives. And it's the ways we love God and love each other together. Now, the smarty pants term for this is ecclesiology. And ironically, the first definition I found for ecclesiology is, Online, which came from Oxford, I'll read it to you so I get it right, is the study of churches, especially church buildings and decoration. Which, it seems, has very little or nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about. My memory of Jesus and uh, church buildings and decorations is he doesn't like tables with money on them, and most of the rest of what he thinks is about metaphorically the way the church should be a building. So one of the issues that happens, though, is when you have a movement that's founded by somebody who isn't really wanting it to be an institution, but wants it to be relational, is that there's a lot of details that have to be worked out, because that's the nature of relationship. It keeps on moving and changing, and it's different. Jesus seemed pretty comfortable with Judaism and the practices of Judaism, mostly, uh, except for when it was oppressing people or not working well. and so. He doesn't seem to try to lay out a new path for how this works as an ongoing system. He didn't even use the word church. And as uh, noted Old Testament scholar Howard R. Macy says, it's probably because he didn't speak English. (laughs) But any relational movement is going to finally have to find some ways to have some system. Like the early friends of Jesus figured this out as well. If it's going to survive, there's got to be some understanding that we have. There's got to be some ways that we, in relationship, relate to each other. So the early followers of Jesus had to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? What do the rhythms of our lives look together like? So our lives together, what do those rhythms look like? How do we create space and time to pay attention to God together? And for the very earliest followers of Jesus, this was pretty easy. Where's Jesus and what is Jesus doing? And let's do that. Let's do that together then. But when Jesus is no longer physically present convening meetings or having dinner or walking through the countryside together, that question becomes more difficult, even if it's still the right question to be asking. So when this community of Jesus followers becomes a bigger group starting at Pentecost, going from 12 really close folks and a few assorted folks to over 3,000 people from different cultures and understandings in one day, this gets a lot harder. And there's folks doing outreach missions like Paul, which reaches from Rome to Ethiopia and beyond, and things quickly get more complicated. We begin to see in the letters of the New Testament that folks are trying to work out what this means to be the people of God together. How do we have this shared life in Christ? We see this specifically referred to in Philippians where it talks about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Figure this out. And of course we often take that individualistically, but this is not written to a certain person. This is written to a group of people. For it's God who's at work in you. So trust that Jesus is here and you can figure out what Jesus wants you to do. And there are so many things to work out that these understandings in some cases become pretty different, pretty spread, pretty broad. Often based on the cultural paradigms that people are living in or their geographic location. There isn't really centralized leadership of the church Uh, For quite a long time, even though Peter and James are doing some of that work from Jerusalem and Paul is doing some of that work in Asia Minor, there's not an authority in the church for a long time. This practice of Christianity, early Christianity, uh, varies broadly. And even though they begin to become popes and stuff, my history nerd listens to a lot of um, podcasts and they were talking about, you know, you look at the early letters of the church To the Pope, and if they agreed with what the Pope said, they said, The Pope said this, and this is how it should be. And if they disagreed, they said, Well, he's just the Pope. So there's not this sort of centralized understanding of monolithic Christianity. We're often prone to think that when Constantine makes Christianity the religion of Rome, that it becomes more standardized. And in some senses, that's true. The Romans uh, certainly worked to codify Christianity with a bunch of creeds. And we get the official list of what counts as scripture at this point. But even within this, what a church is ends up being very diverse. It remains peculiar to the situation that people are in, to the places where that specific church is. What the church looks like in Ireland versus Ethiopia versus India is very different, even if it has some commonalities. The power of the Pope in Rome doesn't hold much sway until much later. And even then, you've still got divisions within that Catholic church. You've got Franciscans and Jesuits and others. And mostly when it has power that way to be monolithic, it's because it's married to political power. So the church has been formed by our culture and the time and place that we live in. And that's true all the way through, and if, you, if you're familiar uh, with, like, Latin American churches, so much of that Catholic church gets married with local understanding, and you get these sometimes quite odd marriages of different religious practice. And that's true even up through now, and so part of that, I think, is because people are going to know Jesus through the place they live, they're going to know they're going to understand life through the cultural lens that they have and that's somewhat inescapable and it's really easy to go down the rabbit hole of cultural christianity and talk about these expressions and to maybe be a little judgy about how other people have worked this out to see the abuse of power that's resulted or misunderstandings that we can see in 2020 hindsight but i think if we're being honest that we can see this in our own modern understandings of Christianity. That we are susceptible as well to cultural lens or distortion. That we suffer through our own idols or our own self-serving culturalism. You know, in our own culture, we can think of name it and claim it as a kind of, if you really read what Jesus said, you go, how on earth could it possibly be about the acquisition of wealth in the name of God? Or Christian nationalism, or military might, or economic dominance, or bigotry that mirrors our cultural bias and perpetuates the power structures that are all part of our current cultural misappropriation of the word church. And so when I, when I say, you know, the church is going to take on the forms of its culture, that's good and it's bad. There's both sides to that coin. And what Jesus offers is inherently going to be partly influenced by our cultural understanding because what Jesus offers is based on relationship, not regulation. Jesus' message is we're in this together and that our faithfulness happens in the time and context and place that we live in. If we come back to the question that the Apostles had at the center of their mutual lives with Jesus, it might be instructive to us on who we're called to be now. Where is Jesus and what is he doing? Let's do that together then. And because Jesus is not physically present with us, inviting us to specific events or actions, this becomes a little more daunting. We're often left with the worst speculation that's based on the best intention. We we, we imagine the question, what would Jesus do? Which seems to me to be misguided, that the question should be, what is Jesus asking me to do? What is Jesus asking us to do? And, of course, we're not left to pure conjecture. Jesus said the most important things were loving God and loving others. Jesus also speaks clearly to the idea of abiding in Jesus' love. And not in a disconnected ideological way, but gives us a very organic metaphor. Jesus is divine. We're the branches. And we're given vitality through the life that passes through that vine to the branches that then produces fruit that we are naturally producing because of the nature of our relationship with God. And sometimes our individualistic culture kind of blinds us to this metaphor. Jesus doesn't say we each get our private vine or that we're growing fruit separately. It's connected. We're connected to the same vital branch, That's some bad news for us as Quakers. We're not immune from cultural influence. Our beginnings are clearly countercultural. We come from a brave group of religious dissidents that, in the middle of a literal civil war, much of which was based around religious conviction, decided to try to dig back into what it meant that there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to our condition. But since then, Quakers have been challenged by our affluence, by what have become our own cultural traditions, by our expectations of what church might mean. We've been willing to accept the definition of church as an institution. And often, we're hard to differentiate between any other Protestant tradition except that there's spaces in our service that there's silence and that our worship and institutional practices are slightly different. I've often wondered what early Quakers would make of us in here in our meeting house replete with steeple and hirelings and our liturgy and institutional structures. And I don't mean that in a rhetorical sense of condemnation. Structure and practice is inherent to any sustainable movement, as those early friends soon found out. But structure is also a problem when it no longer serves the purpose for which it was built. Structures and rhythms have a way of enveloping us and keeping us in bounds in a particular way of being or of lulling us into the framework and keeping us from seeing and seeking what new or ongoing faithfulness might be about. When I found this picture, I thought, that's a pretty sturdy, back, yeah, back one. Um, it's a pretty sturdy structure, That steel gir- those steel girders. Uh, but you're not gonna make much out of it besides a box. That's, going to what, that's kind of going to be what that looks like. And I wonder sometimes if our structures have kind of said to us, well, this is the box you have to fit in. Colin said a couple weeks ago that the idea of the present Christ guiding us and leading us is a mostly untried experiment. That resonated with me quite a bit. And I was thinking about in my own life seeing the difficulty of this. As you all know... Um, I felt called to do something different with my life, but I don't know what that is yet. And I'm kind of impatient with that. In the ways that I have been processing that, I find myself very often seeking comfort and security over faithfulness. It's easier to ask the question, what will provide for my needs? Or what will make enough money? Or what will make me happy? Than it is to say, where's Jesus? And what is Jesus doing? And how do I join Jesus in that? I'll hazard a guess that I'm not the only one in those ways of thinking. I'm guessing that we as a group have a hard time thinking about the future of us without being tempted to allow fear or an unwillingness to release what has been life-giving practice to form who we think we ought to be. Yet at the core of what Jesus is saying, at the core of what it means to be the friends of Jesus, is a release to trust that where Jesus leads us and what Jesus is doing is where we'll need to be. I was also reminded um, in a conversation this week of a phrase that came to mind seven years ago. Uh, I was both going through uh, undiagnosed sleep apnea, which meant I woke up in the middle of the night feeling like I couldn't breathe, which I don't recommend it. Um, And that was about the same time that the yearly meeting split happened. And so there were a lot of things in my life that I wished weren't that way at that time. But this phrase came to me, the only breath you can take is the one you're taking now. And in some ways that wasn't real encouraging. But the only breath that we can take into our lungs is the one we take now. And we can count that there will be a breath to take. There has been breath to take. At some point we won't be able to take that breath if we're honest. That's just the nature of who we are. But the moment that we're in is the only moment we can be in. And there's something comforting about that. That the place my attention needs to be is in the place that I am. And maybe we can alter that phrase a little bit for our purposes as we think about who we are as a meeting. The only place we can be faithful, the only way we can be faithful, is the way that we're faithful now. As we do the work to discern who God is calling us to be, it's helpful to me, and I hope to us, to remember being is in this moment. And we can be mindful and mostly grateful for the ways that the friends of Jesus who came before us were faithful. And we can look forward to what our faithfulness might lead to in the future. But most of all, we can be attentive to the life of Jesus, the vine, to the life that that vine wants to bring to us and supply in us and the fruit that that vine wants to produce in us. And we can be faithful to act, even as it seems a little bit out there. We can be faithful to act and trust that Jesus will show up and act and work through us and that that might disrupt our patterns, but that might lead us to bearing fruit that we're grateful to bear. As we consider what our ecclesiology might be, I'd encourage us to embrace being the church and ask these questions. Where is Jesus and what is he doing? This might be the core defining query of our practice together. So this morning, let's take some time to listen together. There's some questions here that if they're helpful, uh, use them. If they're not, ignore them. Where is Jesus and what is he doing? How do we join Jesus in this? And what would make that possible? So let's listen together, friends. And if you have a message for this meeting, please stand and a mic will be brought to you.